All right, so we are wrapping up our series today on the life of Elijah. What have we learned so far? What are the peaks and valleys that we have seen Elijah go through? Let's review. So shout them out. What are the things we have seen in the life of Elijah so far in our story? When he cast out the prophets of Baal. Okay. The fire and the water. Right. The, the what? The fire and the water. The water? Like how he put water on the thing and then it... Oh, gotcha. Yeah, the Mount Carmel experiment, yeah. right, where, where he... Uh, Puts water on the altar, and then God calls down fire over the prophets of Baal, right? What else have we seen in the life of Elijah? Ready right, raised a widow's son from the dead. What else? Runs to the mountains. Okay, we see him running away, right, into this deep depression up into the mountains. What else happens in that mountain experience? He's fed by ravens. We see him fed by ravens early on. He tells God just to end his hair. Right, he gets into a deep depression. Okay, God responds to his prayers, right? We see his provision. Reveals the prophets, right? Right, he reveals that there's these people that have been in hiding. We see that moment with Obadiah. Okay. And then last week, what did we talk about last week? Genuinely asking because I wasn't here. (laughs) (laughs) He runs because he gets threatened by Jezebel. Okay, he's running because he's threatened by Jezebel. Okay, how does God show himself to him? In a gentle whisper. Right, we see in a gentle whisper, right? So we've seen this ups and downs of Elijah's life that uh, last time he was in this valley of depression and God meets his physical needs. He sends him into community. And that's where we're picking up our story as we're wrapping up the end of Elijah's life and looking at his legacy as it is passed on to the next person. So we are going to be going through a large amount of text uh, because I love the text. Um, and I think that's where life truly is. Um, so let me pray, and then we'll jump in. We're going to be in First Kings chapter 19, uh, right at the end of the chapter. There. Okay. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word, uh, for the stories of the people that have been faithful to you, that those can be encouragements to us. I pray today that it's your words that will be memorable and will stick with the hearts and minds of people and not my own. Um, give us wisdom as we go into looking at what you have for us today through the lives of your servants. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we are in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 to 21. So at the end of the last part that we were reading last week, Elijah uh, is told to go out and find some community. That's going to help him out of this period of depression. So verse 19 picks up. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with the twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelve. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. So Elijah leaves the mountain, and God sends him to find a community. And I think it's interesting where he finds this community, right? It doesn't say that he goes off into a mountain to look for a guy that knows everything about God and has been studying him in Scripture, has been meditating on his word, uh, has been deeply... Uh, knowledgeable about how to deal with politics or how to help him with Ahab, he goes to a farmer. He goes to a guy that's plowing with oxen, and that's the guy that he is going to be passing on the mantle to. And I think that should be an encouragement for us, that God wants everybody, no matter what station of life you're in. If you are out in the world just as a farmer or working, uh, you're in Franklin County, that's who God wants. He wants all of us. Anybody is able to serve God. We also see here that there are 12 pairs of oxen attached by wood and yoke plowing the field, and they each pass by as Elijah is standing there until he gets finally to Elisha. 
So commentators seem to think that the reason for all of this is that he was pretty wealthy. To have 12 pairs of oxen plowing a field implies that he had a lot of wealth. Uh, and so as these 12 servants are going by, each with a pair of oxen, they finally get to the last one. We see Elisha, which is going to be confusing for me to say all day today. So we have Elijah, who is the prophet we've been talking about, and he passes on the mantle to Elisha, which again, sounds very similar. Uh, so I apologize. That's, but those are the names. Uh, I don't know if part of the picking of this guy is because his name sounds similar or not, um, but that's where we are. And so we see that as Elisha passes by, Elijah uh, puts his cloak over his shoulders. Right? And this is a way of showing adoption into a family. Uh, it signifies the favored son to get the inheritance of the father. Right? We see this other places in scripture too. Uh, in Genesis, we see Jacob favored Joseph over all of his brothers. And what did he give Joseph? Right, a cloak of many colors, right? He places this on his shoulders. In Genesis 37, 3, it says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. We see in the Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, when the son comes back, the father welcomes him in as the favored son. In Luke 15, 22, it says, The father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on a ha his hand and shoes on his feet. Right, it's a way of signifying adoption and inheritance as the favored son. But we get the next part of the story, where Elijah ultimately leaves it as a choice for Elijah. He puts his cloak, and then it says Elijah passed by. Right, He just goes on. Uh, and so Elisha has a choice of what to do. It's as if he's saying, I've given you the cloak. Will you follow me? Right, I, I've chosen you. You're my favored son, but it's ultimately your choice. And again, we start to see ourselves in the picture of this story. Verse 20, we see his response. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? Remember, Elisha probably comes from a wealthy family. right? It's, he has a lot to lose here. It's not just that he has a family, but he has a wealthy family. And I think it's cool that this is like the positive example of the rich young ruler from Jesus's time, right? He says, I have so much wealth, and yes, I will run after Elijah. I will give it all up. He is all in. I love also that it says he ran, right? It's not that, it's a it's an instant choice. It's a, he puts his cloak on him, says, it's up to you, and then Elisha books it, saying, I'm coming with you. But at the same time, Elijah also, Elisha also says, could he say a final farewell to his family? And Elijah must realize, like, you're all in, but it's going to cost you everything. And so that's his reaction here, as he says, go back again for what have I done to you? Right? He's thinking about his own life as a prophet, all the things that he's gone through, the ups and downs. He knows what he's asking for his prodigy to do. And so he has sympathy for him. He knows the weight. And so he allows Elisha to go back and say a final farewell to his family. And you have to wonder, does Elijah do this because he doesn't have a family himself, right? We don't know a lot about Elijah the Tishbite. It just says he comes down the mountain and he's there. Uh, where's the rest of his family? Did he have a similar situation? Did he have to give up everything to be this servant of God as well? Is that why he takes sympathy on Elisha in this moment? In verse 21, it continues, he returned from following him. Elisha took the yoke of the oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. 
Elisha not only goes and runs after his new mentor, but he gets rid of everything that could hold him back. Right? He doesn't just uh, you know, leave and follow Elijah. He kills all the oxen and then doesn't just like leave the meat for later. Right? He gives it to everyone. It's gone. It's not coming back. It's not of any use to him after this point. Right? It's all gone. There's a story about a Spanish conquistador named Hernando Cortez who was a terrible person. But uh, when they landed in the New World in 1519, he had his men burn all their ships. So there was no going back. Right? You had to go forward. You couldn't retreat. And so would we be willing to do the same thing? Right? Not just leave our lives as we know it, but make it so we could never return. Are we all in to what God wants us to do? And so we see a couple things from this first story, the initial call of Elisha. One is that God wants everybody. Right? No matter where you are, if you are faithful to him, he wants you and he will use you. We also see that God wants people to choose him, right? It's ultimately a choice. Will you follow me? And we have to surrender completely or else stay comfortable and stay out of it. But it's our choice. And the third thing we see is that God wants every part of us. Obeying means giving up everything. Will we burn the ships and follow after him? So we're going to pause and have just a little discussion. I encourage you to move around and meet some new people. And talk about this. If you were Elisha, what aspects of this story would be hard for you to give up? Right? Is it the job? Is it being a farmer? Is it the family? Is it the wealth? Is it the prospects of future goals? What is it that holds you back from being all in? All right? So we're going to move around, chat with a couple people for a few minutes about this question. All right, let's go ahead and bring it back. We've got more to talk about. Go ahead and bring it back, guys. Find your spot. We'll have a couple more discussion questions as we go. All right. Um, so as Russell kind of said this morning in our prayer circle, like you could stop the story here, right? Where Elisha takes over, but that's not really what happened. It's not an all or nothing. We actually see Elijah and Elisha together for a while, like, you know, this mentor-mentee relationship where he's training up Elisha and what it means to follow the Lord. And I think that aspect is such a beautiful picture of what the church is meant to do that it would be a poor choice to leave that out of the story. That that, that is what we are called to, is to raise up the next generation. And so I wanted to continue in that story. That being said, it's like five chapters. So we're going to sum it up uh, in kind of a chunk here and not read the whole thing. Uh, also, within that, the author Jeremiah kind of flashes back to what's happening in the southern kingdom for a bit, and so we're not going to read all of that, but I'm kind of going to sum it up and we'll pull out certain points. So, after this, Elisha and Elijah, uh, double tag, uh, what's happening with Ahab, uh, and Ahab actually goes to war with Syria against a guy named Ben-Hadad, um, and Elijah actually joins Ahab and their allies for a while. Um, because I think Elijah realized, like, he doesn't want Israel to be completely destroyed either, right? He's really concerned about Ahab's heart and his leadership over the kingdom of Israel, that the people serve God. And so they're allies for a period, 
where they're actually fighting Syria together until Ahab finally wins and defeats Ben-Hadad in Syria and then chooses to let him live because he wants an ally in Ben-Hadad, which he completely blows off Elijah and says, no, no, I want this guy because he is a powerful military. That's who I trust, instead of trusting in God's protection and his uh, friendship, if you will, with Elijah. So one of these prophets, and I think it's interesting, it doesn't name who it is. Different commentators have said different things, that it was Elijah or it was Elisha or one of these guys that was in hiding uh, during this time. Uh, but he says, decides that he needs to speak to Ahab about what's happening, but he knows Ahab's going to recognize him, which, if I had to guess, kind of leans toward Elijah or Elisha. But um, So he has his servant punch him in the face, uh, and then he wraps his face in a bandage to go talk to Ahab so he won't recognize him. Uh, and then he goes to talk to him, uh, which I know, it's hilarious. Right? Why would you not include that in the story? Uh, and so he goes, uh, and he tells Ahab, uh, you know, like, you've done this horrible thing, and then he rips off his bandage dramatically and says, uh, you will die and lose the kingdom because of what you've done. You've chosen this earthly ally instead of allying with God. And so then Ahab goes and sulks, and we get to chapter 21, where he's depressed and upset, and so he does what a lot of us do when we're sad. He goes shopping. And uh, he decides he wants a vineyard. And so uh, he wants to buy a vineyard, he wants to get some wine and own this land, but the guy who owns the land won't sell it to him. Which, again, is really a picture of Ahab because, like, he's the king, he has everything, but this one thing he can't have, he gets upset about. And so he goes to complain to Jezebel about it, and Jezebel says, oh, don't you worry about it, I'll take care of it. She goes and kills Naboth, the guy that owns the vineyard, uh, and takes the vineyard and gives it to her husband. And he rejoices because he finally gets what he wants. On his way to the vineyard, God sends Elijah to him to confront him. Uh, and... In verse 20, we see that Ahab is angry at Elijah and says to him, Have you found me, O my enemy? But he still sees Elijah as the bad guy in this story. Um, and it's really ironic because like, he'd rather be allies with someone who's his literal enemy, uh, who is fighting him in a war, than the guy who's going to tell him truth. Right? Elijah is more of his friend than anybody else in this entire story. The one person who's going to confront him and tell him truth and uh, talk to him honestly when nobody else will, but he doesn't ever see that. And so Elijah tells him, not only is your dynasty going to end, but your entire family will be cut off from the kingdom. There will be no one else in your line that will be king over Israel. And you will see this in your days. And then something unexpected happens. Ahab repents. He gets to a point of brokenness. And that's where we're going to pick up in 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 27. When Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth, sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I'll bring the disaster upon his house. And if you look at the text, there's a part right before this. So you have the killing of Naboth. Um, Elijah saying to him, uh, you're going to lose everything. And then verse 25 and 26 is interesting because it's almost like Jeremiah, as a reminder, says, by the way, Ahab was a terrible person. Like he did more evil than all of the other people before him. And then he repented and God redeems him. Like not that Ahab got it all together, but we have a glimpse for a moment where he goes and humbles himself before God. Um, 
And it's not like there's not anybody else around that's, like, preventing him. Uh, so, like, Jezebel's still there. Like, she's still there in his life, and actually she outlives him. She doesn't die until Second Kings chapter 9. So she's there a long time. She's still the mother of the next king. Um, so it's not that he's gotten these toxic people out of his life that are telling him to, that you don't need to be following Yahweh. Um, but he humbles himself. And I love how God brings Elijah into this. He wants human partners. It's like he's saying, are you seeing this? Did you see this guy? He, he finally gets it. He finally humbled himself before me. Have you seen how Ahab humbled himself? Um, and so God, granted, there's still consequences. But God longs for redemption, right? Even someone who did more evil than all the people before him. God says, because he humbled himself, I will not bring disaster on his days. There's still consequences, but he won't live to see it. It will affect his children. And so you have to wonder, like, in this moment, how would you react if you were Elijah? Right? Would you cheer that Ahab finally gets it? Or would you be bitter that God keeps giving him more and more chances? Right? How do we react in that situation? When someone who doesn't get what they deserve, do we see the grace in that? Or do we feel like it's unjustified? And I think the question we also have to ask, if God can give grace to Ahab, who did more evil than all of those before him, who are we to do any less? So I want us to pause for just a second here before we go on to the next sec section and talk about this. Do you truly believe everyone deserves redemption? Do we still have some hardness in our hearts that we need to work through? Are there still people that we have not forgiven? Do we truly believe this? Are we following the example of God that everybody deserves redemption? All right, chat for a couple of minutes in your groups again on this. Go. So our story doesn't end there either. It continues. Um, Ahab does end up dying in battle. Uh, later on, and his son takes over the new king Ahaziah. Uh, I think we have to keep in mind, just keep this in our heads, Elisha's still there, right? It's not, it says Elijah, but it's Elijah and Elisha. He's seeing all these things, how to confront these kings that are doing the wrong thing. He's learning from his mentor. Uh, so we're going to continue our story. We're now jumping actually to Second Kings. So like I said, the last half, or the last little couple chapters there are a flashback to what's happening in the southern kingdom. Uh, but now we're jumping back to our story in 2 Kings. Okay? So 2 Kings chapter 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in the upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick, which, hilarious. No other detail, but he just fell. Like, you know what lattice is? It's just like that cross hatch of stuff. I just picture him standing there one day and just falling, and then he's injured. Like, it just doesn't explain it, and I love that. Uh, it leaves you to imagine what the situation was. Uh, so he fell through the lattice uh, and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire to Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I should recover from the sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there's no god in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah wept. So Ahab's son is already messing up, right? Like right from the beginning, uh, he's calling on Baal instead of going to Yahweh. He doesn't learn from his father's mistakes or the end of his father's life where he finally repents. So verse 5, the messengers returned to the king and said to them, why have you returned? So it must have been a really short time, right? That they step outside the door and then Elijah meets them and then they just turn around and come back in. It's like, why have you returned so, few, so soon? And so they say to him, verse 6, 
there came a man to meet us, and he said, Go back to the king who sent you, and say to them, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And I love this part. I love the reaction of Ahaziah. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to you and told you these things? And they answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it's Elijah, the Tishbite. <laughs> right, you can just see kind of the comedy there, this rolling of the eyes of Isaiah, like he's known by what he looks like. Like, what does he look like? Uh, he's wearing this garment of hair and this leather belt. It's like, Elijah. <laughs> uh, but I think, too, there's a deeper truth here. If you're someone who speaks truth into people's lives, you get that reaction uh, eventually, that people start to know you as that person that is going to be the one that tells it like it is, uh, and re reveals the truths in people's lives, and people will balk against that. So, chapter nine or verse 9. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50, and he went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of the hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah, Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I'm a man of God, like he addressed him, let fire come down from heaven and consume your and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Mm. Right? So I think we forget, Elijah calls down fire a couple times. Like, Mount Carmel's the big one. Um, and I think it's also telling of the faith of Elijah. He doesn't need to set up a big altar this time and douse it with water. He's gotten to a place in his life where he's like, God called on fire. And it just, like, torches 50 people, right? Uh, that we see how much he has grown in his faith in God and his relationship and understanding of what God wants him to be doing. And then, right, he calls down fire. So the captain tells Elijah, come down. And God says, no, fire will come down. And then uh, it takes two more times of that. He sends another 50 men. Another pillar of fire comes down and hits them. By the time you get to the third one, uh, the captain has a little more sense after seeing two scorched spots of earth where people used to be. And he begs <laughs> Elijah for his life and says, look, I know the king said to come down, but like, please, like, don't kill me. Just, just could you come down and talk to him? Uh, and so Elijah agrees to go and meet with King Ahaziah, where he tells him the same thing he told his messengers. You're not going to survive this illness. You're going to die because you went to a different god besides Yahweh. And then the son of Ahab dies. And there is no one else in Ahab's line. Uh, and that is the end of his line. His brother, Ahab's brother, ends up taking over after this as the next king. So, uh, I think the other part that we see in this that, again, is not in the text, but is implied, is that Elisha gets to see this. Right? He's not there for the first one, not for the Mount Carmel fire, but he gets to see these other ones. And I think it's also important for us to understand that as this mentee, this person that Elijah is mentoring, he gets to see Elijah at his best, where he gets to stand up to the king, and then he gets to see God's power intervene dramatically, right? And so this will be important for Elisha as he grows to be this new prophet taking over for Elijah, right? He sees the hard truths that he gets to tell the kings and the power of God. He gets to see that God will provide and protect those who serve him. And we see it ourselves that following the Lord is a journey, and we all learn different lessons at different parts in our lives. And so we can make the path easier for other people by showing them what we have learned, how God has been faithful to us and how he's provided for us. And it is our duty to pass that on to the next generation. The mission is not over once the fire has come down. It is for the next generation to continue. And so I want us to take a couple minutes.
and talk about that for a little bit. What knowledge and experiences can we pass on to other people? And if you want to go more specifically, does anyone come to mind who you could be training up in faith? Are there people that you already recognized that are on that path, that have that potential that you want to show and save them some pain so there's less valleys in their journey? All right, group up again, and let's talk about this for a little bit. So now we reach the climax of our story, right? In 2 Kings chapter 2, um, the chariots of fire. So, here we go. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophet who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please. <laughs> yes, I know. And yes, thank you. Uh, okay. uh, but, uh, all right. um, but he's, I don't know where I am now. Uh, it repeats three times, so it's really hard to follow. Okay, I'm just going to go four. Uh, Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Okay, so we see this pattern of three things, which is a very biblical way of explaining a point. Um, and we see these prophets at each of these places being like, Hey, do you know that God's going to take your, your mentor away from you? Uh, and when I read that, and that I've learned as I've read scripture, when there are specific details that the details matter, that people are referencing other things. And this is really cool, I think you're going to love this, is that these places that are mentioned here are pointing to something. Okay? Uh, so, we have Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho, and the Jordan, which are references to another person who passes on power to a successor, uh, who wasn't sure if he was going to be able to make it, but is able to do incredible things through the Lord. And it's Moses passing on power to Joshua. And these three places are places Joshua experiences God and knows that he is the rightful successor to Moses, and the people begin to trust in the power of God again as they are entering the Promised Land. But they're in reverse order. So uh, Elijah and Elisha go Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho, Jordan, the opposite is in Joshua. So I'm going to show you these places here. So Joshua starts off, parts the Jordan waters, crosses with the Ark of the Covenant. Joshua then leads the people in the destruction of the walls of Jericho. And then Joshua exposes the sin of Achan, who took some treasure from Jericho at a place called Bethel. And then Joshua defeats the Gibeon people at Gilgal because God puts their army into a panic. And so the question that I was asking when I was reading this is, why do these prophets know Elijah is going to be taken up? or that something's going to happen. It's because they see the reference that's happening, but they see it in reverse order. So, Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho, and then at the Jordan. What's supposed to happen at the Jordan? The crossing of the water and the end of this picture, right? So, when Joshua crosses the Jordan, right, he parts the waters with the Ark of the Covenant. And so, these guys are following them and saying, hey, something's about to happen here, because we see this picture of these places of Elijah and his mentor that he's going to pass power onto in a similar way that Moses passes on power 
to Joshua. So, at each of these places, the other thing we see is that Elijah asks his uh, student, will you leave me now? And, jo- and Elisha gets the picture, and he says, no, I'm not leaving you. Like, I am going to be the Joshua to your Moses. I'm going to finish the work that you started and get your people to enter the promised land. And it's also a great picture of what we read last time about how Elijah leaves his servant and goes off into this depression. Right? This guy says, I am not leaving you. The last time someone left you, like, you went into a downward spiral. Uh, but also, like, in a metaphorical sense, he's saying, like, I'm not leaving you. I, I want what you have. I, there's nowhere else to go. I've burned everything. I'm going with you no matter where you end up. And so um, it, it really is a picture of this test that he's giving his student of will you leave me or will you stay? And it makes me think of Samwise Ganji from The Lord of the Rings, because I love Lord of the Rings. Uh, but there's a point where Frodo uh, can't bear the burden of the ring anymore. He's trying to get to Mount Doom. And Samwise Ganji says, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. And he picks up Frodo and takes him into the mountain. Um, And what a picture, too, of uh, what we are called to do, which is why I love that scene. Uh, Tolkien has a lot of uh, biblical ideas in there. Um, But Elijah also doesn't have to carry this burden as prophet for much longer. right? He has a friend who will carry him to where he needs to go along the way, and he will not leave him. So verse 7 continues, these prophets are still creeping. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they were both standing by the Jordan. They're like, what's going to (laughs) happen? They're they're ready. And Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, struck the water, and the water was parted from one side to the other till the two of them could go over it on dry ground. And I imagine these prophets, like it says there, like stood some distance off, like they're trying not to be creepy, but they're like, watching to see what's going to happen. Like, they know it's going to, like, he's going to part the waters, right? That's the picture here. And so they're trying to, like, let them have their moment, but also really want to see what's happening. So I can just, like, imagine this, like, you know, gasp of excitement over there, and then they're, like, hiding back in the bushes or (laughs) whatever they're doing. Um, So we have these prophets that keep saying to him, like, did you know your mentor's going to leave today, right? And it's like, yes, I get the picture. We see the series of miracles that are happening here. Um, So they part the waters of the Jordan River. Now, the Jordan River is not some creek in the back of Appalachia. Like, it is a huge body of water. water. It's 200 feet deep at its deepest point. So you could not just, like, cross it, like, you know, up to your ankles, walk across. Uh, It has to be parted. It is an impressive (coughs) feat to part the Jordan River, a 200-feet deep river. So they cross. Verse 9. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. What Elisha says here is the same phrasing a son would use for inheritance. Right? The first son gets double portion of whatever the rest of the sons in the family get. We see this continued picture from the cloak that he puts on his shoulders of inheritance. I'm adopting you as my favorite son. And so Elisha continues that idea where we see this closeness, this adoptive nature, this father and son relationship, where he says, I want double, I'm the firstborn, I am your son, I would like my portion of this, right? And then in in verse 10, and Elijah said, or Elijah, I'm sorry, Elijah said, you've asked a hard thing, yet you see me as I have been taken from you, it shall so be for you, but if you do not see me, it shall not be so. Elijah tells him, you want a double portion of what I've got? 
you don't know what you're asking for, man. Like, the peaks and the valleys that I've been through, yes, I've had these great moments at the top, but if you want double of the terrible stuff I've had to do as well, you don't know what you're really asking for here. And so he leaves it up to God. He said, if you see me taken up in a cloud, then you'll know you got it. And if you don't, then God's said no. Right? So, we continue. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horse, horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. I think it's so cool that we there's this little moment right before the, the horses and the fire where it just says they went they still went on and they talked. Right? What a, a intimate moment. And you have to wonder what did they talk about? Right? It's this moment right before this is happening. He says, You want a double portion of what I got? Let me tell you about my story. And then they walk on and talk and they talk about the peaks and they talk about the valleys. Does he give him advice? Does he uh, laugh with him at moments they've seen? together. I think it's cool that the, the writer puts in this little moment that we'll never know what that conversation was. It's just this intimate moment between this father and son. And then it happens. The chariots of fire and the horses come down and Elijah is gone in a whirlwind. Now, part of the symbolism of this, you can go ahead and put to the picture here, is that Baal, the god that Elijah is against for most of his life, is often depicted riding a chariot of clouds, which it's not quite right in that picture, but uh, a chariot of clouds, right? And so it's only fitting that Elijah is taken up with a chariot that comes through and then a whirlwind of clouds takes him up, right? A chariot of fire in this whirlwind. Um, it's just this final uh, snubbing of the people as they, they're worshiping Baal, that Yahweh is the true God, um, that he's the one that sends down fire, he's the one that takes people up in a chariot as well. But again, the story doesn't end. It continues, right? Because after this happens, this great moment, this huge thing where Elijah goes up into heaven, there's still someone left standing there, right? And that's Elisha. In verse 12, it says, Elijah saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his clothes, and he tore them in two pieces. Can you feel Elisha's cry of sadness here? Right? My mentor, my friend, person I've walked in life with, he calls him father because he feels like his son. And I think it's worth noting too, at this point, this is the greatest moment in Elijah's life. This is his ultimate mountaintop experience. It's to be with the one who he's been serving his entire life, but it's also the lowest point for Elisha. And when, when you're experiencing a mountaintop or you're experiencing a valley, it is also someone else's valley or mountaintop. And that's why we need each other, to encourage each other in the valleys and in the mountains. We can see that it's not all or nothing. It's different perspectives for different people. Verse 13, And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Right, The cloak had fallen. That thing that he put over his shoulders and said, I choose you, you are going to be my successor. It had fallen from him in his sadness at seeing his mentor leave. And this is such a symbol of his own spirit, that it had fallen at seeing his mentor leave. But then he picks it up again. He doesn't stay in the valley, he doesn't stay in the sadness. He picks it up again. That hairy cloak that so identified Elijah, every time people saw him, that's what they said, right? He wore a cloak of camel hair. It's now passed on to his mentor. 
or to his mentee, and he picks it up, and he stands at the bank of the Jordan, wondering, can I really do this, right? What just happened at the Jordan? He just parted the river with this cloak. Am I really able to do this? In verse 14, then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, and he struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? When he struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other, and Elisha went over, because God is faithful. And he answers, says, I am with you. The question wasn't, where is Elijah? He knows where Elijah is. The question is, where is God? Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Am I really continuing this tradition? Am I really the one that he has chosen? But Elijah had to take the first step. Right? He saw Elijah part the Jordan, and he learned how to have faith that God would show up again. He's been walking with this man and learning who God is. And so he strikes the water and the river parts for the second time that day. It's one thing to say, like, a miracle happened, and then, like, you know, a hundred years later, that same miracle. But twice in one day, um, like, what's going on with that river system? <laughs> like, you know, those poor, like, fish must be so confused as to what's happening uh, in this whole thing. Uh, so he parts the water, and he continues. Okay. And so we have to ask, do we believe that God is faithful? Do we remember the things that we have seen God do in others and our own lives? Do we look and say, I've seen that river be parted. I know I can do that as well. Are we encouraged by what we have learned from each other? Do we even know all the things God has done in each other's lives? Elisha knew that he was chosen by God because he had seen God work through Elijah. It was now his turn to continue the mission. Verse 15, now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Other people recognize who he is, that he has been given this authority, just like his mentor. And then the conclusion. They said to him, behold now, there are with you 50 strong men. Please let us go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him in some mountain or in some valley. And Elisha says, no, you shall not send. They say, where is Elijah? Is he up in some mountain or in some valley again? And Elijah says, no, he's not. I mean, cut to black, like roll credits. like that. that you can't have a better ending to a story. I mean, that's just good writing. Uh, what a movie that would make, right? There's no more valleys and mountains. Right? It all concludes. Someday the mission will be passed on to someone else and we will get to be with God in heaven. There is an ending to the story. And through the lives of these men, we see that through all the ups and downs of life, our bedrock principle that God is still God. He wants human partners. He wants every part of us. He's faithful to protect and provide he cares about the needs of his people. He wants to be known by all of his people. He longs for us to run to him in the good and in the bad. And he gives us community to grow in our understanding of how to follow him. And if that wasn't enough, he came in human form. He did, Jesus did all of these things, but he did one more thing. <clears throat> he died for us because he still longs for redemption. He wants to be with his people. The God of the Old Testament and the New Testament is still the God of today. God is still God. 
So as we wrap up our discussion today, I want us to talk about this. What part of God's character do you see most clearly? We talk about how there's often this picture that God of the Old Testament is not the same God as the New Testament. I tell you, he is. He is the same always. And so what part gets you most excited about who God is? Let's encourage each other and remind each other of who we serve. So let's talk with this for a little bit.